Thanks for taking some time to listen to this message on the Elevate Church podcast. We believe that God will speak to you wherever you are. Now, let's prepare our hearts and hear what God has for us today. You can have a seat for a second because I'm about to get you back up on your feet because we are in for such a treat today. I mean, I can't tell you how excited I am for you to hear from our guest communicator this Memorial Day weekend. Now, normally when we introduce somebody, uh, I might say, like if, if my boy Roy down here on the front, what's up, Roy? Good to see you, man. If I brought Roy up here, I'd say, hey, I want to introduce you to my brother from another mother, right? That's what I would say, Roy. <laughs> but today I'm going to introduce you to my brother from the same mother. <laughs> my older brother is here today to bring us a word on this Memorial Day weekend. And I know my mom is watching. This is the service that she tunes into from Texas. So, hey, we're glad you're watching, Mom. We promise not to fight while we're up here together. <laughs> Maybe, we'll see. Actually, I was thinking about, you know, what stories could I tell of, of me and my brother Matt, like fighting growing up. He's three years older than I am. Um, he's way older than me. <laughs> But I couldn't think of anything. And I think that's, that's, that's a word for some of you parents that are like, my kids just won't stop fighting. Listen, it doesn't mean anything, like we're over it. And I couldn't be more honored that he is here. He is a chaplain in the United States Army. And he's been serving this country faithfully for 30 years. Come on, somebody. Man. You go, go ahead and just stay standing. Go ahead. He's been serving his wife faithfully for 30 years as well. Who is here with us today? Jamie, and they have, they have three beautiful children. One of them is here, Emma Kate, hanging out on the front row. But Matt has done tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and Africa. He's just an amazing man of God. And so uh, I figure since... Since we're not going to fight, now is my chance, though, to get at him just a little bit. And so I want to show you a picture of the way that I remember him. <laughs> hey, that's coming back, just so you know. The little half mullet kind of, that's coming back. Some of you are sporting that. And none of our other services have seen this one because this is really the way that I remember Matt. Check this out right here. That's back in the Miami Vice days. Look at that. And that good-looking guy, you know who that is. Elevate Church, can you do me a favor? Stand to your feet and can we honor this great man, Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Matthew David Atkins. Come on. I couldn't be prouder that that's my brother. Couldn't be prouder. Isn't he an awesome pastor? He is. He is the greatest. I, I tell you, that's part of why I'm a chaplain, because when I heard him preach, I thought, I'm never going to be that. So, and my other brother is a retired Marine with a whole bunch of combat deployments, and uh, I'm never going to be that. So I figure I'll just try to split the difference, you know, I'll just, I'll be a little of both if I can. But uh, boy, what a, what a great privilege to be here with you all. What a phenomenal church you have. Uh, just incredible people. Yeah. 
a great staff and a great band, and this has just been a, a wonderful weekend just to get to spend some time with you all. I even got to go to Crasherama last night. Anybody else suffer out there with us? Where's the kid in here that ordered the snow cone last night in 32 degrees? I don't see him in here. There was one. All right. Well, uh, listen, it's been, a, it's been a great privilege for me and to serve in the military these years, but especially to be here with you on Memorial Day and to be remembering uh, the, the folks who've, you know, suffered and given their lives on behalf of this country, and I, I bet we could go around the room, and that many of you have parents who served in Korea and Vietnam and grandparents who served in World War II, and, and I bet you there's quite a few of you in here as well that served in the military, and if I could, could I just invite you to stand for just a moment if you've served in the military at some point? I just want to, wow, whole bunch, whole bunch, wow. Thank you, thank you, thank you. you. You all are the real deal. It's just a privilege for me to get to serve soldiers. And uh, I don't know a lot of your Marines and sailors and airmen, maybe even a Coast Guard person or two in here, we're just gonna consider them for the day that they're military as well. Uh, I'm not gonna make a habit of that, but today I will do that. Uh, but what a, what a great privilege. Right now, I, I get the unique privilege of serving as the division chaplain to the 10th Mountain Division. It's a division that was begun during the height of World War II to put soldiers on mountains because they knew they're going to have to fight in Italy in the mountains. And so they assembled a, a group of skiers, which wasn't that popular back then, no snowboarders in that day. And they, they brought them all together at Camp Hale in Camp Swift, Colorado, and trained up a division worth of soldiers to go fight in Italy. And they did. And they served in a couple of major battles. We had a World uh, uh, Medal of Honor recipient in one of those as well. And uh, then they deactivated that unit for a couple of decades and then just reinstituted it up at Fort Drum, New York, about four and a half hours from here, where there are 15,000 trigger pullers uh, waiting to go. In fact, a bunch of them are still gone. Uh, 10th Mountain has been the most deployed division since uh, 9-11, since the beginning of the global war on terror. Uh, they were the first into Afghanistan, and by the grace of God, we're going to be the last out here before too long if uh, everything goes as according to plan and we're able to start pulling people in. But during the course of that time, we've lost 328 soldiers in combat. Uh, of course, the, uh, the United States has lost over 7,000 during that same period of time from 9-11 to today, but that pales, you know, in comparison to the thousands we lost in Vietnam, uh, and then the thousands more in Korea, and then beyond that, World War II and before. I had the great privilege a couple of years ago, by the way, just a note about our country and its dedication to its servicemen uh, to, to fly out to Hawaii to escort back the remains of my wife's great uncle who was killed at 19 years old. He'd been in Korea for just a matter of weeks on some remote hilltop, and his, his uh, remains were left there undiscovered for 69 years. And uh, the government is still looking for remains in various parts of the world, and they found and went through incredibly painstaking uh, procedures to identify uh, um, Bobby Mitchell. And, uh, and figure out exactly who he was and to bring him home. And so about three years ago, I had the privilege of escorting his remains back to the U.S. and, and uh, officiating at his funeral in B.B., Arkansas. So, and, and one living, you know, sister 
who got to be present for that, who remembers the waiting and the waiting and the waiting. What a country we belong to that's willing to go to those great lengths for its people. So we're very privileged, very fortunate. Yeah. I just want to say a few names this morning, since I have this opportunity to say them publicly, of some dear friends and friends of soldiers that we've lost. Patrick Devo was one of the first I lost as a chaplain in a combat unit in Afghanistan. He's from Auburn, New York. Uh, his daughter Jazabel, not Jezebel, Jazibel, uh, is growing up in Auburn, New York right now. Nicholas Gideon and Joey Coletti. First Sergeant Brent Myers, who one of the most passionate leaders you'll ever meet. Deployed with the Rangers many years and deployed with a 425 uh, Airborne Infantry Brigade out of Alaska many times. Came back, uh, survived all of that well. You'd just be amazed at this man. He would show up to staff meetings with his mirrored glasses and his old-fashioned aviator helmet. The commander just look at him like, well, it's Brent Myers. We'll just roll on. And then after his service, ended up taking his life. And we've had kind of an epidemic of that related to PTSD and people not exactly knowing how to handle their existential questions in life. And so I remember him today, and I think of his family. And uh, I know many of you are thinking of other family members, some who've uh, uh, maybe even passed in similar circumstances today. Gold star families who've lost uh, people that they loved dearly. Jesus came to answer the existential question, didn't he? What is God like? When a chaplain shows up at a new unit, he gets asked this question in a thousand ways, almost never with words, but in a thousand ways. In fact, my job in the army is to answer the question, what is God like? That's my job. An incredible job that I have an incredible opportunity, but that is the question that is the existential question on the mind of every soldier that I've ever met. What is God like? And they almost never articulate it, but in word and in deed, I'm called to answer that question. Guess what? I don't think that's very different from you. I mean, we're surrounded by people who have an existential question, right? I, I love the blanket that Colby gave me with your mission on it for Elevate Church. Know God, find freedom, discover purpose, make a difference, bless other people. What's the first part of that? Know God. What is God like? You know, that's why Jesus became incarnate. Came, became incarnate so that people who for thousands of years prior to his coming, who'd been searching for what is God like and trying in all manner of ways to try and please and communicate with and uh, beg the blessing of and entreat uh, his wrath to turn, he came to explain what God is like, right? And so I want to turn with you this morning and look at... Uh, Mark's gospel, right about the middle of the gospel, and I think it's so interesting to me that it's dead center of the middle of this gospel because it's like this passage where Jesus is asking an existential question to his followers is the, is the question through which everything filters, everything he's done prior to this point, all his miracles, all his teaching, all of his walking with and eating with and spending time with people, and everything that he will do coming out of that on the way to Jerusalem. So let's look at that together, and if you'll turn with me or, or look on the screen at uh, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 27. 
And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. By the way, you're going to have to wear these before long, just so you know. It, it hit dad right about 50. You got three years. You got three years. Just throwing that out there. Yeah. It's something like that. Explain these things. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. The existential question. It's interesting to me that Jesus begins almost this setup with, with the question, what do people say about me? It's really easy to answer that question. It's academic, right? You can meet at a coffee shop and talk out loud and not care who's listening to answer that question. It's philosophical. It's remote from any you know, personal claim to you. What, is, what are people in general saying about me? And the answers are probably what we would expect and probably not the point. They, some said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Remember he'd recently been killed at the behest of, uh, of Herodias, right? The daughter of Herod, daughter-in-law. Long story. So others say you're Elijah who was supposed to be the predecessor for the Messiah coming back. Others say you're another great prophet. I remember the moment when I was in the chaplain officer basic course in the army. It's interesting. I was in a very interesting squad, by the way. It was me, uh, uh, um, a Muslim chaplain who's a dear friend of mine to this day, a, an Orthodox Jewish chaplain, a Reformed Jewish chaplain. It was so funny because the Orthodox would always tell me, you're more Jewish than chaplain so-and-so. I can't believe he calls himself Jewish. So that's my bad, bad New York accent. But, uh, uh, and an Anglican. So interesting group. But I remember the conversation I had with my now dear friend, and he said, you know, you and I have a lot in common religiously. Turns out we don't have as much, but there, there are elements. And I said, like, like what? I mean, how, how do you all regard Jesus? Because it's central to us. He said, oh, I believe he's a great prophet. So do you believe he's the son of God, though? He said, yes, in a manner of speaking. I said, do you believe he's coming again? He said, absolutely, we believe that. Wow. I said, do you believe he was crucified, buried, resurrected? And he said, well, that's where Christians are misguided because God can't suffer. So somebody else would have had to have been crucified in his place, even though he's not a partner with God, but he was one of the chief among the, the prophets. So I'm probably going to get all of his theology wrong, but we had that conversation. I remember thinking, boy, then that, that's, this is the central identifying piece of my faith is that God entered into the world, right? Became incarnate, took on flesh, entered into the brokenness of humanity, goes to a cross and dies on behalf of it to redeem it, right? And then risen again. And so, but we could have this conversation on a philosophical level, right? We could talk all day about this. 
philosophically. But Jesus never settles for a place in the conversation of critics, does he? Never. He's always going to turn the question to your heart. And he's going to ask you now, not so much concerned about what your parents say or what the people at work say or, you know, what your friends think. I want to know, who do you say that I am? It's the existential question. What is God like? Who is Jesus? Same question. You remember a couple chapters before this event when the the disciples are in a boat. You remember and Jesus is sleeping in the boat? Remember that story? And they're all asleep, or Jesus is asleep and a storm comes on that is so fierce, so intense, that seasoned fishermen believe this is going to be the end of their lives, right? They're going to drown here. And so they finally, you know, they struggle to rouse Jesus. I'm still you know, mystified. He is sleeping in the boat at this moment. I have been fishing in Alaska in six foot of waves, and I could never ever even consider sleeping in that moment. I consider throwing up a lot, but not sleeping. But he's asleep in this boat, and this storm is so intense, and it's raging around them, and finally he gets up and, and probably rolls his eyes, you know, at their lack of faith in that moment. He stretches out his hand, and the scriptures say he speaks, and it stops, Right? Only thing I can compare that to is I've had, I guess I'll call it the privilege, not a pleasure of jumping out of a lot of military aircraft, right? And uh, it is not a fun day. It's not like going civilian skydiving, you know, with a can of Mountain Dew and fist bumping everybody and it's all fun. Uh, it, is, it is a procedure and a process and painful. You start at about zero three and you're rigging up and you're wearing about 150 more pounds of stuff than you brought, you know, than your own body. And so strap your ruck on your waist and your chute. And if you're a, you know, not a chaplain, a, a weapon here. If you are a chaplain, they just give you an extra radio or something to put in your ruck to make up the difference. <laughs> and then you waddle onto the plane because this is how you walk when you're like that. And you lay back in the seat. You rest for three or four hours while they're flying, nap of the earth. Anybody know what nap of the earth is? It's the worst. It's where you're flying with the contour of the land, and, and the pilots are trying to make you throw up. It's a game to them. I know. Uh, it's just fun. They're counting how many uh, paratroopers in the back are throwing up. And so we fly, we fly, and then they open the doors, and it's deafening. The wind guard comes out, and wah, just the rage of the air blowing, and everything's kind of flapping inside. And the jump master's standing up and he's yelling commands at you and you can see his lips moving but you can't hear anything he's saying. And you're just watching the hand signals and you hook up and you're getting ready to go and it's so loud, so loud and then finally hand off your static line step out of the door and jump and dead silence. It's the, that part of it is the coolest experience. For about 45 seconds, it's really cool. Then you hit the ground really hard. But for that 45 seconds... You go from driving noise to utter silence, and all you can hear, heart beating, right? Looking up, making sure you have a canopy, everything's good, riding down. Imagine that moment for those disciples, this deafening storm, and Jesus speaks, and it stops, right? And all they can hear is their heart beating, and the water dripping from their beards back into the boat, and then one of them breaks the silence and offers a confession. It says, who is this that even wind and waves obey him? Yeah. 
That's a confession. Problem with the confession is it was born in a storm. And how many of you have been there? Lord, if you will get me out of this, <laughs> I'm going to follow. Things are going to be different. I'm going to live very, if you'll just get me out of this and then you get out of this. And then things kind of gradually move back to where they were before. And so Jesus takes this very important moment and he stops on the road to Jerusalem in a town called Caesarea Philippi. By the way, look at it on a map. No lake nearby, nothing (laughs) life-threatening. Beautiful afternoon, sunny day, and he looks at Peter and says, right now, apart from the storms, apart from everybody else's opinion, apart from all the talk of the crowd, what about you? Right now. Why does Jesus ask him that? Does Jesus need Peter's validation? Yeah, it's the last thing he needs. Paul says about him in Colossians that he, he both created and formed the world and that it was formed for him. A person who hangs galaxies and universes and planets and stars does not need the validation of a fisherman, right? He doesn't need it. He asks it because he knows the road ahead for Peter is about to get hard. About to get really hard. I met a a dear friend, I haven't spoken with him in years. And, and very frankly, I don't know if he is alive. His life was continually under threat because of his answer to this question. His name was Hashmat Ahmadzai. And he was uh, an interpreter of mine in Afghanistan, the man in the center uh, with the dark hat on. Hashmat grew up along the Pakistani border from a very distinguished Pashtun family, very wealthy Pashtun family, uh, wealthy enough that when he was in his mid-20s, he was able to uh, move to London to go to school, get educated, learn English uh, comprehensively. And while he was there, he was working in a pizza shop, and he was a full-time student, part-time employee at a pizza shop, and he said he felt very low. It just reached a real low in his life spiritually, really searching. What is God like? The burning question on his mind. He walked past a phone booth one afternoon and he saw inside the phone booth a purse and he picked up the purse and he took it to work and the, the owner of the pizza shop said, hey, it's a gift. Take, take the money out of the purse, throw the chur- purse in the dumpster in the back and, uh, and thank Allah and just you know, call it a day. Well, he didn't do that. Uh, although he might have. He said he could not even afford bus fare at the time. <laughs> but, uh, but he looked inside and he found a phone number and he called the woman uh, who owned the purse. And uh, she, she came after church. She said, I'm at church, but after church I'm going to come and thank you. And She came, he said, and he remembers vividly her holding, grabbing his hand and praying for him and blessing him. Said He used the the, the blessing from the Old Testament, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. So he couldn't get, get it out of his mind. So he said, well, that was a good thing that came from that. Every day he looked at that same phone booth to see what else he could find in the phone booth. One day he does find a Christian tract. So it was soaking wet. He picked it up, was in the habit of reading anything in English. And because it came from that phone booth, it felt valuable to him. He took it and he set it on top of the pizza oven to dry out and later he pulled it down and he read these words. Who is your creator? And then underneath that, the scripture from the gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
So he called the number on it, and they put him in touch with an Algerian-born convert to Christianity uh, who was trained at Al-Azhar University in Cairo, leading Islamic theological institution in the world. And they sat down and began to have months of conversation over coffee, over questions. And, and, and uh, Hashmat told me, he said, I, I remember vividly this feeling of I have committed so many sins, but how could I commit this chief sin of making a partner with Allah, believing that Jesus is co-equal with the Father in power and in glory? He said, I just, I, I couldn't get past this, but I continued to read and pray and think. And he said, one day I woke up And as the question was presented to me, who do you say that I am? I couldn't help but answer, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Hashmat is an incredible man. I remember him telling me about the day he came back to Afghanistan to get his ID to become an interpreter. And he was a converted Christian by this point. And he said he went to the the office to get his ID, his taskira, they call it. And they said, well, when were you born? Show us your birth certificate. He said, well, we don't have birth certificates. He said, so I called my mom, said, when was I born? Her answer was, well, it snowed a lot that year. That was as close as she could get. And so he said, I stood before them and I said, well, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm 29. And they said, stand still, we're looking at you. And they brought him out his ID and they had made him 47 <laughs> on his ID. And he said, what, 47? No, I'm not even 30. And they said, you should be lucky we made you that, that young. Go, you know. So, so my 47-year-old interpreter, who was at least a decade younger than me at the time, uh, Hasmat Ahmed Zai, would go around and would share stories of his faith with soldiers, with others. His life was continually under threat because it is a sin punishable by death in Afghanistan to convert from Islam to Christianity. And he would say to me when I would say, Paul, should you be more careful? He would say, they can have my head. I walk in the light. And it was like you're hanging out with the Apostle Paul. But this existential question, which sometimes we take for granted because we just don't have the same kinds of threats and challenges that so many do in answering this. Who do you say that I am? My hero in the chaplaincy, though, is a man named G. Studdard Kennedy. He was a World War I British Anglican chaplain whom his soldiers called lovingly Woodbine Willie because he gave out Woodbine cigarettes in the trenches. And he had this continual challenge in the midst of incredible suffering, incredible suffering in those trenches in World War I to communicate that there is still a God who is good in the midst of things that we absolutely cannot understand. Can't begin to understand. So many of you are experiencing suffering in so many different ways. So many of you have experienced it in different ways. And the challenge in all of these things is to maintain in our minds this truth that God is good in the midst of suffering. And how do we do that? We can do that based on the reality that God enters into the suffering with us. If if he was remote, if he was abstract, if he was indifferent, we, we would be right to fear him and we might be justified to hate him. But he enters in. He suffers with us. G. Studdard Kennedy wrote a poem. I'll share with you just the last half of this poem. It's called The Suffering God. And in, in the last half, he says, how can it be 
that God could reign in glory, calmly content with what his love has done, reading unmoved this piteous, shameful story, all the vile deeds men do beneath the sun. Are there no tears in the heart of the eternal? Is there no pain to pierce the soul of God? Then he must be a fiend of hell infernal, beating the earth to pieces with his rod. Or is it just that there's nothing behind it? Nothing but forces, purposeless and blind? Is the last thing, if mortal man could find it, only some power wandering as the wind? And here he turns it, but O Father, if he, the Christ, were thy revealer, and truly the first begotten of the Lord, then you must be a sufferer and a healer. Pierced to the heart by the sorrow of the sword, then must it mean not only that thy sorrow smote thee that once upon the lonely tree, but that today and tonight and on the morrow still it will come, O gallant God, to thee. Swift to its heart in spite of human scorning, hastens the day when the storm clouds roll apart and rings o'er the earth the message of the morning, still on the cross the Savior bears his heart. And then he turns his words from Jesus to our response, and he says, passionately fierce, the voice of God is pleading, pleading with men to arm them for the fight. Look at his hands, majestically bleeding. See how they call us to rout the armies of the night. It's not to the work of sordid, selfish saving of your own souls to dwell with him on high, but to the soldiers, splendid, selfless, braving, eager to fight for righteousness and die. Because peace doesn't mean the end of all our striving, and joy is not just the drying of our tears. Peace is the power that comes to souls arriving up to the light where God himself appears, and joy is the wine that God is ever pouring into the hearts of those who strive with him, lightening their eyes to vision and adoring and strengthening their arms to warfare, glad and grim. And then he ends it, so would I live. I want to live that way, not in idle resting, stupid like swine that wallow in the mire. Fain would I fight and be forever breasting danger and death, forever under fire. Only bread of your body give me for my fighting. And give me to drink your sacred blood for wine while there are wrongs that need me and us for the writing and while there is warfare splendid and divine. Give me for light the sunshine of thy sorrow. Give me for shelter the shadow of thy cross. Give me to share the glory of thy morrow gone then from my heart, the bitterness of loss. The suffering is endurable for two reasons. Jesus enters in, he redeems it and conquers it. Think of Peter. Peter, after this conversation with Jesus goes on, Jesus knows the road ahead. He's going to go to Lydda and Sharon and Joppa and preach all these towns along the Mediterranean coast. And in all of these places, he's going to be told to knock it off put you in jail. We're going to take your life from you if you continue to preach that Jesus is resurrected. And you remember what Peter's response is most of the time. Who would you rather I I follow and obey, you all or God? (laughs) I know what God is like. God is like Jesus. Tradition tells us that when Peter reached the end and they, in Rome, some dusty street in Rome, they crucified him upside down, that 
Uh, an early Christian historian records that prior to Peter's death, uh, part of his penalty was to watch his wife be crucified first. And that Peter stood beneath her cross and said, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. It's one thing to suffer for something that you believe. It's an entirely another thing to watch somebody else suffer for something you believe. You better know that you believe it. Jesus asks him that question and you remember, he says, who do you say that I am? You remember Peter's response. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I'll wrap up just by telling you I met a lovely Gold Star family Thursday at our division memorial service at uh, Fort Drum. Our commander spoke briefly and uh, we hung a wreath in front of the monument and stood around the plaques of 328 names from GWAT, Global War on Terror, and all of those who were killed in World War II. And a young, well, younger than Vietnam age couple was on their way out. And I assumed he was just a, you know, a kid in Vietnam or, uh, you know, just caught the tail end of Vietnam. And so I stopped him to just say, hey, I want to tell you, Vietnam vets are to us the greatest generation. They don't hear that enough, you know. And so I, and he said, oh, that was my era, but I, I missed it by about six years, a little later. He said, I'm here for my son. And his son was Eric Klusacek, who was killed in 2011 out of Fort Carson, Colorado, killed in Afghanistan. And so I got to engage him in about 15 minutes of conversation. That's all the time we had. And I, I asked him, I said, are there days, he and his wife, so are there days when it, it feels like it was just yesterday? And he said, not, not some, all. <laughs> all days feel like it was yesterday when that chaplain knocked on the door and the non-commissioned officer said, sir, ma'am, uh, Secretary of Defense regrets to inform you the loss of your son. And there are no words, Right? There are no words for you to share with people in the midst of the most traumatic suffering. But there's an existential question. What is God like? Does he care? Is he remote and indifferent? Did he set this world into motion and then just back off and let, let us run our wars and our famines and our cutthroat businesses? Or does he enter in to the brokenness? What is God like? He is like Jesus. Jesus enters in to restore and to redeem. He is pierced to the heart by the sorrow of the sword. But he comes so that one day the bitterness of loss is removed. Let's pray together this morning. Thank you, Heavenly Father that you love us so deeply that you enter in. No one understands suffering better than the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who share with us in all of our brokenness in order to restore it and to redeem it. We love you today. And our corporate answer to the question, who do we say that you are? We say that you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Amen. 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 Come on, church. Can we just give it up for Chaplain Matt? Would you stand with me?
Thanks for checking out this week's message on the Elevate Church podcast, and we hope you really enjoyed it. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. Welcome to the family. We would love to know about it, so please let us know by going to elevatechurch.com slash yes. There will be some practical resources that will help you as you start this journey. If you want to support the mission and vision of Elevate Church to help people far from God reach their full potential in Christ, go to elevatechurch.com slash give. We'll see you soon. Have a great week.